This is Global Mining News, available worldwide on the internet. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocavelli, and we have a, what I'm calling a Jules Verne episode. We have the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea episode with Deep Green Metals, who are looking for polymetallic nodules at the bottom of the ocean, and so Gerard Barron will be joining us. That is our feature interview today, and it's pretty fascinating. I think if you're into science, if you're into oceanography, if you're into politics, if you're into mining, if you're into international treaties, uh, you will like this. Like I was saying in the last episode, I like to keep things accessible, and what I like about this one is I think there's a general accessibility on this story, mining for metal at the bottom of the ocean. However, in an environmentally friendly way. I mean, it doesn't sound very environmental, so Gerard's going to explain why Deep Green is doing it that way. And he's also got an interesting history with Nautilus, which is, the I think, the first story I ever wrote for the Northern Miner, way back in 2012, my first assignment. And so then Gerard has ties with Nautilus, and so a very interesting conversation. So... We're going to get you right up to speed on the cutting edge of deep sea mining. Just like our episode with BHP, you're on the cutting edge of really ESG public relations in episode 204 there with that full presentation from BHP on what they're doing, uh, climate change and their whole ESG initiative. With this one, you're getting really the cutting edge of deep sea mining, and it's actually quite, well, tantalizing Maybe an overstatement, but it is pretty interesting what they are up to over there. So that is happening. I missed Battery Metal Day. I frankly wasn't paying too much attention. I've gone down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, and that is just boggling my mind right now. So Battery Metals Day kind of came and went uh, like a cloud in the sky from planet pokebelly over here so uh, well i guess i guess there's some things that happened and i actually and let me just say i'm definitely not a hater of elon musk i'm not a fanboy either (laughs) it's like everyone has to kind of i'll give elon musk credit i mean he's in the news so much that everybody has to kind of make a decision on how they feel about him he's like a political figure at this point and uh i Always kind of thought he was interesting, but nothing really that special. Until I saw the SpaceX thing. Until that launch, I think it was only three months ago, maybe two months ago. I was perusing my YouTube some evening in the summer, and they had the live launch of the SpaceX rocket. And, you know, the first privately launched rocket ship, from what I understand... And when you see that go up, then you, you know, there's no denying it at that point. It's like, well, you know, that's an accomplishment wherever you stand. I think the jury's still out on this Tesla car thing. It's another just fascinating. It's a really fascinating 2020 media landscape. And let me tell you, if you want to add some spice, go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole because that one I've been down for two or three weeks now and. It is. It's sort of, yeah, I don't even know where to start with that one. 
Uh, I, th- I was sort of thinking to myself this morning, end my interviews with Bitcoin, yay or nay. Uh, so anyways, let's not get too far on that. Lots happening at the Northern Miner. We've got some big plans coming here. I don't know if we can announce anything yet, but watch this space. And we have some really great stories coming up here too. We have the second part of our survey looking at the mining industry and how it's reacting to COVID-19 and more essential information for everybody in this industry. Also the Pebble Partnership, the CEO has resigned over leak tapes. We're going to take a look at all of that. So an exciting episode. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook and LinkedIn and also on YouTube where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available. And with that, let's turn to Gord Sosinski from Petro-Canada Lubricants for our next Mining Minute. Joining us once again on another Mining Minute is Gord Sosinski, Senior Technical Services Advisor for Petro-Canada Lubricants. And Gord, what are the benefits of choosing a synthetic engine oil? Good question. Typically, your engine oils today are made with synthetic base stocks. And such the benefits of choosing those synthetic lubricants are far reaching, but the most common advantages are they have good load carrying abilities, which results in reduced wear. They have better oxidation stability, which allows you longer drain intervals. There's lower volatility, which means you have less oil consumption. They're compatible with most seal materials, so there's no leaking. And often by choosing lubricants, you can consolidate sometimes one or two viscosity grades into one. So it's, it's a plus when you're doing a product consolidation effort. They're compatible with most mineral oils. So if you have a mistake in the shop and you put a synthetic into a common mineral oil, you won't have any problems. And it allows you to operate in wider temperature extreme conditions. So it really is the foundation of an all-season lubricant. They're also responsible for fuel efficiency savings because of that lower coefficient of friction. So the more lubricant requires from OEMs, they're starting to lean towards the use of synthetic lubricants, not just in engine oils, but also in drivetrains as well as other components. We have at Petro-Canada Lubricants calculators to help you determine what the benefit may look like in terms of dollars saved, where you can enter hypothetical numbers based on cost and drain intervals, and at the end of the day, see where that result is. But there's very many benefits and very few negatives to converting to synthetics. That's interesting. So it sounds like we can actually save money here by switching over to synthetic engine oil. Is that a fair simplification? Absolutely. And that's the benefit of using the Petro-Canada lubricants calculators, because typically the cost of the oil per liter is going to be more expensive, but the longer term benefits in terms of extended drain intervals, longer component life. So instead of you know, replacing an engine or a transmission at 15,000 hours, you may be doing it at 17,000 hours. Right. So there may be a higher cost initially, but over time you will get that money and more back in the long run. And using the calculator will help you decide the value in doing that upfront before you make the investment. Okay, perfect. And how do people find that calculator? You can reach us through our website at lubricants.petro-canada.com or call us toll-free at 1-866-335-3369, and that will get you in touch with somebody at Petro-Canada Lubricants who can work with you with the calculators. Okay, beautiful. Thank you so much, Gord. I think a lot of our 
mining operators may really enjoy hearing this and will want to check out that calculator. Great. Thank you once again. And we will see you next week on our final Mining Minute. Thanks, Adrian. And that was Gord Sosinski from Petro-Canada Lubricants. If you'd like to learn more about Gord and Petro-Canada Lubricants products, simply visit our show notes where we'll have a link to the website and you'll also be able to see more details on Gord. And with that, let's turn to the website. Uh, Let's take a look at the survey. Industry survey captures concerns about long-term impact of COVID-19. And this is by Carl A. Williams, our senior reporter and science reporter. And he is looking at this survey put together by the Northern Miner and the Canadian Mining Journal. And they got quite a few people, 384 people from the sector who were responding to a combination of multiple choice and open-ended questions. And the readers were mainly from mining and exploration companies, but they're also from suppliers and consultants. And there were a few respondents who identified as investors or being part of financial institutions, governments, or NGOs. So let's take a look at this. Although the long-term impact of COVID-19 on the mining industry is still unknown, the economic downturn will continue to affect the industry for some time to come, according to many respondents. Over half, 53% of the respondents felt that the economic downturn would last more than a year, and this was conducted during July and August, okay? With 31% stating that it would last up to a year. A few respondents predicted that the downturn could last anywhere from two to 10 years or until a vaccine was found. That's pretty epic (laughs) prediction, 10 years. Wow. Uh, The impact, according to a senior geologist at a consulting company, quote, will be the same as the other downturns. Fewer jobs available, fewer students entering the industry, and more students entering postgraduate programs and slower investment interest. Now, don't forget our last show with Eric Buckland, who says things are booming in the mining industry as far as if you want a job. I mean, according to Eric Buckland, you don't want a job if you're not working in the mining industry. So feel free to email me if you feel otherwise. But yeah, it sounds like there's actually quite a few opportunities out there right now. It's probably all about having a niche, but yeah, feel free to email if you see something different happening. Anyway, continuing on here, across the board, respondents indicated that the economic slowdown would reduce the demand for commodities and lower prices, which doesn't seem to have happened either, leading to a decrease in mining and exploration activities. Now, so far that hasn't been the case so far, but don't think that this is an interesting study of sentiment as well. I mean, this is July and August. Metals had been going up, but there is still a long way to go to where we are now. So it's interesting. The general mood wasn't too good. And if you're working in a mining company and you're seeing people go, that is also going to factor into how you feel about the future. Continuing on, we have a quote from a respondent who works for a mining company, quote, lower demands on mineral resource commodities will reduce and or eliminate new developments and reduce mining operations, resulting in a major downturn in the industry. Majors may weather, but juniors and mid-tiers will be at much greater risk. Now, why is sentiment important? Because if you're running a mining company and you have kind of a negative sentiment on the future, that probably means your capex how much you're going to invest in your company is probably going to be lower. Even though commodity prices have gone up, this is still an interesting indicator. 
because it might suggest how some companies were investing in their own business in July and August. We have another who was more optimistic, stating that while there would be diminished demand for some materials, quote, all industries need raw materials to function, and after a period of adjustment, the mining industry should pick up, end of quote. One respondent noted that while the shortage in supply of metals may not be good for mining companies, it may benefit exploration companies and drive up prices. A handful of respondents felt that gold projects would benefit from the downturn, but forecasts that the market will remain soft for some commodities like diamonds. Another respondent who worked with a supplier predicted that while, quote, business will adapt to new realities, it will at least take 18 months to recover. The same respondent also acknowledged the impact the pandemic has had on Indigenous communities. Quote, most Indigenous communities are very concerned about their health and safety and do not want outsiders visiting them. He wrote, it will be necessary for companies and regulators to come up with acceptable new engagement strategies. So an interesting wrinkle there. Again, this was in July and August. A few respondents also commented on the impact on rural communities. Quote, rural communities that have been hit hard by COVID-19 may place undue pressure for help, assistance, and even profit sharing on regional mines. The lack of exploration for one year can put an exploration company back between three and five years. This may affect the opening of new mines or the expansion of present mines. So a fairly pessimistic outlook this summer from many in the mining industry. And here, this was quite interesting as well, scrolling down, a lot of people feel that the government should do more to enforce social protocols to limit the spread of COVID-19 and allow businesses and mines to continue operating. However, several felt that the federal government should provide a more consistent set of rules countrywide. Quote, governments need to ensure clear and consistent messaging, said a respondent from a mining company. To help our economy, they need to back the resource sector, not try to cripple it with unattainable goals. The view was echoed by another respondent who felt that the government should, quote, increase public awareness of the importance of mining's contribution, which will help balance poor public image problems. I think that's been true a lot of places, too, I think. I mean, the mining industry, I think governments definitely appreciate the mining industry a little more after this pandemic because they're one of the few industries that they could basically keep going in the middle of a lockdown and that really generate real revenues. One senior geologist working for a major Canadian mining company said the industry has shown that it can safely operate during a pandemic and that the government should, quote, keep mining an important business if there is a second wave that forces another shutdown. So they don't want to be closed down again. And then people wanted a lot more support from the government, Just sort of scrolling through this, including a reduction in income tax, a loosening of travel restrictions, both interprovincial and international. I, we were talking about this last episode. I'm based in Berlin, Germany, and I was very surprised to hear about interprovincial travel restrictions. I, as someone that grew up in Saskatchewan, that kind of shocked me. I don't know the extent of them. I mean, to me, it was news to me. So I'm actually curious to know more about that. Increased employment subsidies were also requested and more streamlined permitting. <laughs> Let's just put it all in Santa's bag there. <laughs> so what else in the grab bag here? Um, one respondent from an exploration company based in Canada said the government should provide incentives to invest money on exploration, saying, 
give exploration companies a reason to be here. There was considerable support among the respondents for government wage subsidy programs like the CERB, Canada Emergency Response Benefit, which provides $500 per week for four weeks for Canadians whose jobs have been impacted by the pandemic. One senior executive from a major Canadian gold mining company said the federal government, quote, can include pre-revenue companies, companies without revenue, in their COVID-19 wage subsidy program. And this was a bit of a tension, right? Because I think it was, if you've lost more than 30% of your revenue, then you could apply for it. At least that's how it started out. And so if you're an explorer or you're losing money to begin with, you don't get to take part, right? Continuing on, one respondent from a supplier company felt that the government should, quote, stop giving money to people not to work and that their company had many spots available, but CERB was making people not work. So a microcosm of the larger debate, isn't it? One executive from an exploration company focused in the Northwest Territories said the government should change the legislation relating to Canada pension plan contributions to ensure that, quote, Employees are not penalized if they are work for greatly reduced amounts or relying on wage subsidies during the pandemic, where lower income years do not count and thus will not have a negative effect on the long-term CPP benefits payable. So scrolling down a little more, just to wrap this up, you can get the full report on the northernminer.com website. Now this is interesting. Although companies in the mining industry appear to have generally coped well with COVID-19, many expressed concern about the pandemic's future impact on business. Their biggest worry was the long-term shuttering of mines, which polled at 30%. Of those polled, 27% voiced a broad range of concerns, which included travel restrictions, hampering access to sites, and the ability to consult with communities, the health and safety of employees, contractors and communities, lack of or loss of business client interest, trade nationalism, supply chain disruptions, and mining companies failing to adapt. The loss of its skilled workforce was also an issue, with 24% of respondents ranking it as their primary concern. And again, you just have to go back to our last episode with Eric Buckland. You know, considering how hard it is to fill some of these roles, you could see companies say, I know we pay them a fortune, but we have to keep these people because we might not get them back and we may not get another one that can do that job for a while. Interesting little executive dilemma, isn't it? According to many of those polled, the impact on the workforce was significant. They felt that skilled workers would migrate to other sectors and finding workers willing to operate in confined spaces and close to other people would be a challenge. And some people thought that the industry's aging demographic would push many older workers into retirement. And we'll just do this final quote here. I think skilled labor who are on the brink of retirement will retire, said a respondent from a supplier company. Because mining has an aging workforce, this will have long-term impacts on the industry. And a geoscientist from a consulting firm also felt that COVID-19 could see, quote, senior members retire with no knowledge transfer to their previous companies. I'm going to leave it there. There's a lot more in here to look at. So just a little dabbling into that must-read survey, unique one-of-a-kind survey for the industry, at least that I've seen. So... That is available on northernminer.com. Industry survey captures concerns about long-term impacts of COVID-19. Moving on. So Pebble, which uh, the U.S. president has weighed in on, Donald Trump Jr. has weighed in on, and environmental groups have weighed in on more turmoil in the Pebble project as the Pebble Partnership, which is a U.S.-based subsidiary of Northern Dynasty Minerals. 
So there's Northern Dynasty Minerals, and this is my mining.com staff. There's Northern Dynasty Minerals, and they have a U.S.-based subsidiary called the Pebble Limited Partnership, which really just focuses on this mine, and I think in just talking to lawmakers and consultants and everything. So Tom Collier, their CEO of the Pebble Limited Partnership, has resigned in light of comments made about elected and regulatory officials in Alaska in private conversations, videotaped by an environmental activist group. So it sounds like someone was tricking Mr. Collier. The announcement comes as doubts about the proposed pebble, copper, gold, molybdenum mine have steadily risen in recent months. In September, short seller J Capital Research accused Northern Dynasty management of, quote, gaslighting investors, end of quote, and said the mine plan is, quote, on its face, absurd, end of quote. The Trump administration in July proposed approving a permit for the mine, which would be located near the world's largest commercial sockeye salmon-producing region. Opponents of the project have long feared its discharges could contaminate local waters, causing irreparable damage to the aquatic habitat. So Northern Dynasty has named an interim CEO, John Shively, and the company said, so here's their response, that Collier's comments embellished both his and the Pebble Partnership's relationships with elected officials and federal representatives in Alaska, including Governor Dunleavy, Senators Murkowski and Sullivan, and senior representatives of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And here we get to, like, the meat of it. Conversations with Collier, as well as others were secretly videotaped by two unknown individuals posing as representatives of a Hong Kong-based investment firm with links to a Chinese state-owned enterprise, the company said. A Washington, D.C.-based environmental group, the Environmental Investigation Agency, released the tapes online on September 21st, only a few days ago, after obscuring the voices and identities of the individuals posing as investors. Now, John Shively, the new interim CEO of the Pebble Project Partnership, says the project is too important to the region and the state not to proceed. Quote, My priority is to advance our current plan through the regulatory process so we can prove to the state's political leaders, regulatory officials, and all Alaskans that we can meet the very high environmental standards, Shively said in a statement. So... We have just finally on this, there's mining analyst Mike Kozak, who covers Northern Dynasty for Cantor Fitzgerald. He wrote in a research note that the secretly recorded meetings, quote, exposed and embellished Mr. Collier's political connections in Alaska and Washington, D.C., and were clearly insulting to state and federal officials and senior representatives of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Kozak also said the project's permitting timeline will likely be affected and delayed. Quote, in our view, his resignation, while completely warranted, may now delay the completion of the compensatory mitigation plan and likely push the record of decision beyond the U.S. presidential election in November. And don't forget, we have the big debate tonight. The first big debate. That should be pretty epic. So the drama at Pebble continues. And keeping on the political theme a little bit, we got the great interview by Daniel Sekulik with the Saskatchewan Minister of Energy and Resources. And her name is Brownwyn Iyer. And 
She's calling this new federal clean fuel standard in Canada a, quote, second carbon tax. So there's a full interview available on the Northern Miner, and it's also in our Prairie section of our new issue that we just released. We have a nice Prairie special. And here, yeah, I just wanted to skip to the carbon tax area. What you, so the Northern Miner asks, what do you see as the biggest challenges facing the mining sector in Saskatchewan? And Brownwin Iyer says, I have to say the biggest ongoing challenges are emanating from the federal government. Most importantly, we have been addressing the impacts of the clean fuel standard and the anticipated serious impacts of it, as well as oil and gas. This will impact mining. The clean fuel standard focuses very much on switching to electricity for transportation and heating. But that doesn't take into account the more carbon intensive nature of power generation in Saskatchewan compared to the hydro and nuclear powered grids that you see in other provinces. We also have to transport products over much greater distances, and that already adds costs. But mining companies are saying that the economic bottom line of this is not going to be minor, she continues. We're talking millions and millions of dollars. And make no mistake, the clean fuel standard is a second carbon tax. It will be applied on top of the carbon tax on the same emissions. And we feel in Saskatchewan that the carbon tax is already uneconomic. So just wanted to highlight that one, get the full interview. Dan and the minister talk about all things Saskatchewan there. And it's a very interesting piece. And continuing on, I just want to touch on this one as well. BHP Options Elliott Copper Project in Australia. And the only reason I want to highlight this one, it really shows that BHP is looking for copper. This is like the new trend. I mean, Barrick seems to be pretty interested in copper. BHP is interested in copper. You know, we hear it as the new energy metal of the future, copper, copper, copper. And so here's BHP. They have signed an option agreement with Encounter Resources over the Australian Explorer's 4,500 square kilometer Elliott Copper Project in the Northern Territory in Australia. There you have it. Uh, just That's all I wanted to say on that one is BHP has just optioned uh, the Elliott Copper Project in Australia. Interesting, interesting. And finally, we have some price forecasts. And Raymond James is raising their price forecasts for base metals and iron ore. Uh, they are lowering them for uranium. So let's just take a quick look at what they have. It's by Northern Miner staff. Raymond James forecasts higher average prices for copper, nickel, lead, zinc, and iron ore, but lower prices for uranium. The financial services firm has increased its average copper price forecast for this year to $2.71 per pound, up from its previous estimate of $2.62 per pound. And next year, they expect an average of $2.80 per pound, and they expect it to remain at that level in 2022. It's kind of interesting because a lot of people are buying copper companies or investing in copper, and Raymond James doesn't really see, actually they see it going down by 2022, although that's higher than their previous average. Again, remember, these averages are always usually quite low, and I think the justification is we always are thinking about it when it's high and going, oh, isn't that average crazy? But sometimes they go lower. They do tend to be low, though. Anyways, continuing on here, nickel is expected to average $6.08 per pound in 2020. That's quite low, but it, yeah, but we have to factor in March. And that's up from their previous forecast of $5.58. And they expect nickel to be at $6.50 in 2021 and $7 in 2022. Zinc should average 98 cents per pound. That's up from 91 cents. Next year, it will average 95 cents per pound and rising to a dollar in 2022. Lead is expected to average 83 cents per pound this year. 
And in 2021, they expect it to average 87 cents. And in 2022, 95 cents. And iron ore, they expect $114 per ton in 2020 as an average price. In 2021, the average will slip to $96 per ton. And in 2022, $85 per ton. And finally, uranium is supposed to go lower. This year, I mean, think of the change that is. Like during March, when stocks were cratering, uranium was on a tear. They were moving against the market. While everything was going down, uranium was going up. There was a lot of bullishness. People thought this was it. Uranium, the bulb market has finally returned. Yet Raymond James expects an average price of $31.36 per pound in 2020. And that is down from $33.11, which was their original forecast. In 2021, average prices are forecast to reach $42.50, significantly higher. That's almost a third higher, 30% higher, and $45 per pound in 2022. And those predictions are unchanged. So there you have it. Those are the latest in Raymond James forecasts. So now let's turn to metal prices and see what's actually going on there. prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com for providing us with these prices each and every week. And if you'd like to see them for yourself, simply go to mining.com slash markets. And these numbers will appear. And on September 29th, gold is trading at $1,881.81 per ounce. That is $20 lower then last week's quote, silver is trading at $23.62 per ounce. That is 45 cents lower than last week's quote. Platinum is trading at $883.25. That is only 28 cents lower than last week's quote. And palladium is trading at $2,261.32 per ounce. And that is $10 lower than last week. So the pullback continues in gold and silver. Platinum palladium staying very steady. Copper is down dramatically from last week. It's at $2.96 per pound. That is 14 cents lower than last week's quote. Aluminum is down a penny at 78 cents per pound. Lead is down 4 cents at 82 cents per pound. Nickel is also down. It's at $6.48. That is 28 cents lower than last week. Tin is at $7.75 per pound. That is 49 cents lower than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $15.41 per pound. And zinc is also lower at $1.07 per pound. That is 7 cents lower than last week. So a general pullback in the metals this week in both the industrial and the precious metals and palladium and platinum stay firm and copper probably the most notable drop but gold below $1,900 the drama continues and those are your metal prices and coming up we have Gerard Barron who is chairman and CEO of Deep Green Metals and Gerard Barron is a seasoned entrepreneur 
with a track record of building global companies in battery technology, media, and future-oriented resource development, both as a chief executive and strategic investor. He became involved in the early strategic development and financing of Deep Green during its formation in 2011 and stepped into the role of chairman and CEO in 2017. So it was a very interesting interview. Again, I think you're going to get a real window into the cutting edge of deep sea mining. So here's my interview with Gerard Barron of Deep Green Metals. Welcome, Gerard Barron, who is chairman and CEO of Deep Green Metals, and I believe they're based out of London. Welcome to the show, Gerard. It's great to have you on. Thanks, Adrian. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, Gerard, we came across an article a few weeks ago on what you guys were doing, and I think the thing that struck me most, and you guys are into deep sea mining was the approach you guys were taking. It seemed like you were bringing a lot of scientists on board, <laughs> and uh, deep-sea mining has been very controversial in the past. Mm. I remember Nautilus Minerals was being, I guess, attacked by environmental groups for potentially doing damage to the seafloor. Tell us about what you're up to with deep green metals. So let's start with the big picture. And the big picture question for society is, where are the best supply of these virgin ores that we need to build the batteries? And when I say the best supply, I mean from an environmental perspective and from a societal perspective. And so we believe at Deep Green that that answer is in the form of polymetallic nodules. And uh, so I, I was pleased that you know you noticed how many environmental scientists we have in our team because we now have over 150 of the world's leading ocean scientists working on our environmental program. And, you know, and that's one of the, the questions that we're seeking answers to, and that is, what are the impacts of collecting these metals from 4,000 meters below sea level? And, you know, so we're, we've launched the largest ever ocean floor to ocean surface environmental study. Um, to understand what's the impact of removing these nodules, what's the impact of some of the dust that will be created as we, as we collect them off the ocean floor, and will there be any impact of you know having our riser operate through the water column? So yeah, so that's that's kind of the big picture, seeking answers to those questions, and hopefully providing a very large and abundant uh, supply of these materials that we need to build the batteries. Very interesting. So how did you personally then come to this project? Do you come out of mining? Are you, do you come out of ocean science? What is well, your background and what brings you to this very kind of pioneering area in mining? I mean, there's space and there's the ocean that are kind yeah. of the more pioneering areas. How did you get here and uh, what brought you here? Yeah, so I'm I'm certainly not a miner. In fact, the first company that I I started was back at university too many years ago to remember now, but I grew up on a dairy farm in Australia and um, and started my first company in second year. And I've been lucky enough to be building companies ever since. And I'm, I'm attracted to difficult challenges. Some would say impossible challenges, but, and I guess where it all started was um, back in 2001, 
a friend of mine uh, worked at a company called Nautilus that you just mentioned. And I knew nothing about mining. I knew nothing about metals, actually. And, but I was fascinated to learn that the oceans were filled with metals. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. That must be a better way of producing metals than digging up rainforests and destroying you know, our limited resource that is land. Anyway, so I, I seed funded that business and you know, worked with the CEO to help you know, raise more money. But I, the gift to me of, from Nautilus was learning about nodules because you know, Nautilus was focused on sulfides, which I don't believe are the answer. I think the answer is polymetallic nodules. And so, you know, I, I then provided some capital when the company started back in 2011. And I was busy running one of my other companies. And, and you know, I also helped the company raise money from outside investors. And then I just kind of had that life moment where I started to reflect on, you know, what am I doing? Like, I started to understand the impacts of climate change and the existential risk it posed. And then I realized, you know, by digging deeper, just how how dangerous producing more metals could be. You know, if we, it's a little bit like fossil fuels, you know, they've, they were very important, obviously, in the last uh, industrialization, but the unintended consequences were enormous. And I started to realize that the same thing could happen when it came to metals, that, that we think we need more metals to get away from fossil fuels, but what are the, what's the impact of doing that? And so I then stepped in to take over uh, running the company. And at the time we had a, a very senior mining executive leading the charge. And I realized that's not what we need. You know, we need to address this from a uh, environmental perspective. And it's very hard to have a you know, a career-driven mining executive, uh, particularly one that had run a coal business, to be leading the messaging around this opportunity. <laughs> and so I, I, I stepped in um, back in 2017 and, you know, reinvigorated the strategy. And I must say, I'm, I'm super, super pleased with the results. And so, uh, you know, we're off on a very exciting journey. It's so interesting. Uh, you're sort of filling in the, uh, the pieces of the puzzle there for me, because when I was reading that article that we had on you a few weeks ago, I thought to myself, this is not business as usual that's going on with Deep Green as far as bringing on university scientists from what look like, yeah, like you said, there's something like 150 or, you know, these yep. from institutions all over the world. And, you know, we had just profiled some other deep sea company whose name escapes me right now. And you didn't get the sense that they were concerned about the environment so much. I mean, everybody says they are, but... For them, they were taking Mexico to court under NAFTA because of uh, they weren't allowed to mine in certain areas. And you guys, as I sort of noted on that podcast, so you guys are taking the exact opposite approach. Mm. And so I guess that you not coming out of mining, for example, I guess is part of that. Mm. That the mining side is um, well. Firstly, we shouldn't even call what we're doing mining because. You know, polymetallic nodules lie on the ocean floor. You know, we don't have to dig for them or blast or tunnel. We just have to collect them. But, you know, we're not kidding ourselves. Collecting will even have impacts because we'll have to have a, a tracked vehicle operating on the ocean floor and that's going to run over, you know, the seabed and that's going to kick up a bit of dust and so on. But, you know, the, the, the whole reason why, you know, I, I guess, figured that 
we need to win this from an environmental perspective is because we have to present choices. You know, we have to be grown-ups about this, that we need to move away from some fossil fuels. We need to build more batteries. Everything we do has an impact, okay? The question is, how do these set of impacts compare to the known set of impacts that currently we experience from land-based mining? Okay, so we've all, we've all understood the impact of fossil fuels, but do we really understand the impact of you know, mining these metals and what will be the impact if we electrify the fleet, if we move away from you know, fossil fuel-driven power? You know, it's going to be enormous. And so that's why we funded a white paper. It was independently authored that focused a full life cycle analysis around what will be the impacts across a very broad range of areas of, you know, if we electrify a billion of those cars that are currently driving around on the roads, because that's what's going to happen, right? We're going to take cars off the road and we're going to replace them with electric vehicles. Not as many, I hope, but we'll replace them. And so, you know, that white paper just further proved what we already knew, and that was that we can we can compress CO2 emissions by more than 90% if we build these batteries with nodules compared to land-based sources. We can we can generate zero tailings. Just imagine that. Imagine none of those dams bursting in Brazil or all of these tailings that have been dumped into the coral triangle off Indonesia. Imagine no waste material because we use 100% of the rocks that we collect. So, you know, we just figured we need to put the data, we need to put the facts in place. And so, and we were very pleased only in recent days that the Journal of Cleaner Production published a subset from that white paper that was uh, peer-reviewed, which just focused on the CO2 impacts. And um, because we know that people get emotional about this, people get emotional about what the, about the oceans, what will happen? Because they've seen what the land-based mining industry has has done, and they just assume it's going to be the same, but it's not the same. Okay, and I, I want to sort of flesh that out a bit. So, what did Nautilus get wrong then? Because I remembered quite a few environmental groups, or at least one very prominent one at the time, was making a lot of noise. And yours, I guess, associated with Nautilus. So, what did they get wrong? And were they being misinterpreted, or were they actually getting certain sort of process things wrong? And I what think, are you doing differently? Yes, I, I think Nautilus had very good rigor. You know, I, they prepared a, a great environmental research program. They carried out all their studies, but they had a few, what I believe to be fatal flaws. One is they were going after sulfides. And as you know, sulfides form through volcanogenic activity and and they are on the ocean floor the same way they are in the on, in the countryside. And to extract them, you've got to send down big heavy machinery and you've got to turn big rocks into little rocks and then you've got to pump them to the surface. So that's not the case with us. Our, we have billions of tons of these nodules that lie unattached. Think of golf balls on a driving range. So that's one very, very big difference. The other thing about Nautilus was they, they knew those systems were there. They just didn't find too many of them. And they, I think in the end, they only had an 8 million ton resource. Whereas in our case, we are a Canadian company. We have a two resource statements totaling 1.6 billion tons. That's enough nickel, cobalt, copper, and manganese to build 255 million electric vehicle batteries, 75 kilowatt batteries. 
So it's very, very large. The other thing is that they're operating in Papua New Guinea, and, and that's one of the challenges the mining industry faces, that some of these developing country jurisdictions are challenging, you know, because they, they change the rules midway through. Governments get voted out, and the new government doesn't have the same view. Sometimes you're dealing with corruption. Sometimes you're dealing with, with just people that don't want to do things. And, and so that's very challenging if you're having to invest billions of dollars. And so from a deep green perspective, very different resource, very large, very easy to understand the differences. The fact that we don't have to dig and you know break rocks into smaller rocks is a, is a massive advantage for us. So you know, I'd like to think many lessons were learned from Nautilus. And I, I think that saying that the pioneers often end up with the arrows in the back is a perfect and apt description of Nautilus. You know, had mm. they not done what they did, then those lessons may not have been learned. And those lessons will be very important for our future. And so from that perspective, you know, I, I, we must remember Nautilus never mined a single thing. They spent a lot of money, hundreds right. of millions of dollars, trying to get started, doing environmental studies. And so, you know, that's the other thing, that we, we can't be too harsh on them because they were also in the middle of the GFC, right? That was the other challenge for them. So if anything could go wrong, I think it did go wrong for them, and I'm, I'm very sorry for that. But, you know, we're lucky and fortunate to have learned, and, you know, look at, look at our timing. You know, now we're at a stage in society where we all understand why we need to move away from fossil fuels, you know, where are we going to get these new virgin oils from? So, so our good fortune. So Nautilus was in PNG or near it in the waters. Mm. Where are you guys finding these nodules? How do you even stake out claims in the ocean? Like, where are you working? Yeah. So, well, to, to understand that, we have to go back to the 1870s. Explorers wanted to know what lay on the bottom of the ocean. And so... An expedition set off, funded by the Royal Society, on a boat named the HMS Challenger. And the steam piston had just been developed. And so the HMS Challenger traveled around the world with a dredge off the back of the boat. And they hauled up the dredge regularly and mapped what they found. And these nodules were found in a variety of locations. But there's one area of focus. And that area is known as the clarion Clipperton zone. It's about a thousand miles off the coast of Mexico. And it's a fracture zone that runs about 4,000 miles long. And it's the perfect breeding ground for these nodules because they actually, they precipitate the metals that are in the ocean water and that are in the ocean sediment. So nodules uh, in this area are rich in nickel and copper and cobalt and manganese. But the nickel and the copper are the two key ingredients here because the Rockies and the Andes were once covered in nickel and copper. And so as all of those mineral tops eroded through rivers and, and other means into the Pacific Ocean, they settled to form the, the mineral feedstock for these nodules to grow. So nodules were found in other locations as well, but they're pretty well uneconomic to recover because they are just basically iron hydroxides uh, with some manganese in it, but just not worth collecting. You can, you can go and dig up iron ore in the Pilbara, you know, for a fraction of the cost. So very unique area. Okay, very interesting. And so who do you talk to? Is there some sort of UN treaty that you can go in there, or do you 
talk to Mexico? Like who, who do you get permission or do you need permission? I, like yeah. how does this work? Yes. Well, well, great questions. From the 1870s, fast forward to the 1970s, when the industry started to get going and there were many companies involved, Shell and BP and Mitsubishi and Rio Tinto were there through Kennecott and Inco and Lockheed Martin. And they were all focused on building these systems to collect these nodules from 4,000 meters below water. Now, they operated on the premise that they would be able to lay claim over the area. But the problem was no one had agreed, the world hadn't agreed, who owned the oceans. And so it was Henry Kissinger who wrote to all of the ambassadors and said, hey, we, America, want to lay claim to this part of the Pacific. And as you could imagine, all the ambassadors got together and said, well, that doesn't sound too equitable. Uh, no. And so they all had to go and do something else. And so that was in the late 70s. Finally, in 1982, UNCLOS was agreed, the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea. And basically what that says is that as a sovereign, you own everything within 12 miles of your coastline, and you have an economic right to everything within 200 miles. But beyond that, it belongs to everyone. It's the common heritage of mankind. And so the United mm -hmm. Nations set up the International Seabed Authority, and they are the governor of the high seas. And so it is from them that we have three exploration licenses and they're very familiar with terrestrial licenses. You know, you get an exclusive right for 15 years to do your work, to improve the ground, and to move from exploration to exploitation. And that's what we're doing right now. We're in the middle of our feasibility work so we can submit our application to move from exploration to exploitation. And, um, yeah, that's what we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars doing. So just... A little bit on the nitty gritty. So, do you send a little email to the UN and say, "Hey, we're gonna, <laughs> we're going to this latitude and longitude," or, or like, or and who pays? Do you pay taxes? Like, yeah, I mean, a good question. Just a little, just a question. Like, how does that all work? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, you have to go and understand UNCLOS, and um, so so understanding the regulatory regime is. Uh, well, it takes time and takes a lot of resources. And, and that's what we've been busy doing for more than a decade now. And so you then have to put forward a plan. And that plan is about, you know, how you want to go exploring, um, you know, parts of the high seas, the international waters. So you put an application together, you have to pay over a considerable uh, application fee. And you then scope a plan of work with that application and the regulator considers it. And then you learn whether you've been successful or not. And of course, once you're successful, then the money spend really begins because you have a work program you're committed to. Now, we, um, along with everyone else, are currently still in the exploration phase. So we're in the science business, really, of getting answers to these questions. And, you know, I think our plan is to have our first production operating by 2024, so we're still a few years away. But as far as royalties go, there will be a royalty, a, a very handsome royalty paid to the regulator, to the International Seabed Authority. And UNCLOS was very clear on what should happen to that royalty. It should be, it should be distributed to the developing nations, and particularly those landlocked nations that have no oceans of their own. And so it's an opportunity mm. of developing nations to participate. And in fact, uh, another provision of UNCLOS 
allowed for a developing country to sponsor a private company. And that's how we currently have licenses because we have a, a, a block sponsored by Nauru, one sponsored by the Kingdom of Tonga, and another sponsored by Kiribati. And so this provides those developing countries a real opportunity to participate in the development of a new industry. Uh, and, you know, it's ironic that those nations that have contributed least to climate change will be the first to be impacted by climate change through rising sea levels. Both Tonga and Kiribati are at great risk of disappearing through rising sea levels. So, so this provides their economies with some hope. They'll have an opportunity to employ lots of people on these projects. They will earn royalty streams themselves once we're in production. And at the moment, those economies depend very heavily on fishing rights and foreign aid. So this is an important opportunity to, to spread some of that economic benefit. Okay, and just to clarify, so when you say the regulator, is that the UN or a body of the UN? No, it's the International Seabed Authority, which was and which was what's set up. Their, and is that a international panel of or board? Think of it as um, a, an organization very similar to the UN. So it has a 167 member states and plus the European Union, so 168 in total. And so it operates just like the United Nations does uh, through a consensus type uh, platform. And so the negatives are it's slow. It was set up in 1994 with the express purpose to put in place a regulatory regime to allow the development of this industry. And here we are in 2020 and we're, we're just getting there. But that also has some benefits because you know, they are very careful. They're steady, slow, and careful. And I think that's a that's a positive thing. And final question just on this before we move to the economics of this project. Are the U.S. and China, have they signed on to this? China has. And the U.S. Uh, signed it but did not ratify it. And so it was held up in the Senate. But we see that as a pretty low risk factor because, you know, the U.S. participates in the council meetings they certainly fund a big part of it through the right. UN, of course. And um, but it became a little bit of a political football in the end. But sure, all these China global things, yeah, in the Senate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we, if you haven't caught it, we had a 60 Minutes did a very interesting piece last year on the topic, and they came aboard our research vessel and uh, featured the industry and. And their question was, why, America, are we not signing this? We're missing out on some great economic benefits. <laughs> right. So, right. Um, But, of course, what, what America really wants is access to the metals because without manganese, you can't make steel. Without nickel, you can't build battery cathodes. And I think one of the impacts of this whole pandemic was we got to see how fragile supply chains are. And we got to see the dangers of globalization. And I think countries want to build their own supply chains now and not be in, entirely dependent on Asia. Yeah, absolutely. You see that in the antibiotics and prescription drugs, especially. Hopefully they're concerned about that. Okay, so now tell us about the economics of the project. Like, I guess you're dealing with a whole different, I mean, you're not doing grams per ton. You're really in the business of collecting nodules, which sounds like it's actually could be pretty cheap once you figure out how to get down there and pick these things up without too much damage. Yeah, it's a bulk commodity. It's a bulk commodity. And, you know, that means, um, you know, we, we have a, 
a fantastic partner who we're working with right now. Uh, their name is All Seas. They're one of our shareholders. And they're one of the largest pipe layers uh, for the deep ocean oil and gas industry. And they, like many in that industry, saw that the industry was coming to a slowdown and they needed to diversify. Now, they're a very engineering-led company, more than 600 engineers in their research area. And so we're working with them to build the most low-impact collection system possible. But it's a bulk commodity, you're right. But when you get to start something afresh, you get to reimagine it a little bit as well. And you get to take all of those learnings and apply it to a new industry. And if one of your objectives is to minimize the impacts, then you can design around that. And, you know, so that's one of the benefits we have. But eventually, we don't know now what the most efficient way of collecting nodules will be economically. But we're going to find out. We've got a lot of companies who are beating a path to our door who are wanting to, you know, enter agreements with us to come and develop systems to collect nodules. And from our perspective, we have a lot of resource. The door is open. Come and sit down with us and let's understand what the requirements are. Let's understand the hurdles that one has to be able to, to jump over. And then, you know, we, we need to be collecting these metals because if you if you tuned in to Battery Day from I missed it. Tesla the other day. I well, missed it, 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 but I heard about it. Yeah. yeah, it was fascinating. I mean, if 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 Elon is right and we're going to need 20 terawatts of uh, annual battery production to move away from fossil fuels, that's going to take a lot of nickel, a lot of nickel. Okay, interesting. And so just wrapping up here, so are you guys going to do a preliminary economic assessment of some kind or what's the roadmap as far yeah, as, or have you already, have you already done oh, yeah. that? Like what's the no, roadmap? We did that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we did that. Um, so we've, we've completed that some years ago. We're now through the pre-fees, um, not finished it because we need to launch our pilot harvesting system. And, you know, we're on a pathway to bankable feasibility study um, with a view of being in production by 2024. So it's all, it's all full steam ahead at the moment. Right. And you see a profitable venture here. Like, I mean, because sure. uh, I mean, everybody can be all trying to do something environmental, but are, are you, you see a way of making money here. Well, I guess with any resource, it's about grade. And the grade of this resource is off the charts. So if we think about, you know, last year, the average grade of copper was mined was less than half of 1%. So that's a lot of dirt you're having to dig up and move about and process to get a little bit of copper. Whereas our resource has 1.1% copper. We have 1.4% nickel. We have about 0.2% cobalt and about 30% manganese, all in the same ton of material. So the grade is off the charts. And the efficiency is very good as well, because we, because we don't have levels of deleterious elements that need special processing. It means no tailings. It means no waste material. And so that has a big impact on the economics. And so we will comfortably be in the bottom quartile uh, as far as cost goes, of all of those metals. And um, yeah, and so that, that puts us in a very strong economic position. And combined with the environmental advantages, we think it's the right time to be pushing ahead with this industry. Okay, and final question. Uh, have you guys decided or figured out where you're going to process these metals or these nodules? Or are you going to send them to a company in 
Canada or you have your own place? Have you figured mm. that out? Sure. Well, we're in the process of figuring it out right now. We we completed um, our first past site study selection back in early 2019. And we're negotiating with governments right now because, you know, one of the other tremendous advantages of this resource is that you can collect more nodules, you can put them on a ship and you can send them to North America, you can send them to Europe, you can send them to, to Asia or to Africa or, or down to Australia. So you're not hemmed in by infrastructure and that's something not to be underestimated. So our job is to evenly distribute that out. But you know, with a land-based project, you can get so much production out the door, but then you might have to build another whole set of infrastructure to be able to handle more material. So we don't have that restriction. We will construct our processing facilities near a deep water port in a stable fiscal regime, somewhere with power and water and all the infrastructure that you need to make these things work. So, you know, we're busy negotiating those agreements now. And obviously, one of the, the stimuluses from COVID will be more investment in industries that can help the green transition and this fits squarely in the middle of that so okay excellent yeah so it sounds like there's a lot of flexibility there as to yeah. where you can do that so just finally any parting thoughts uh, for the audience Gerard? well you know I, i'd encourage everyone to keep following the story and and keep asking the why you know we've we've got some great reference points through our presentations about you know, the why metrics, you know, why is this resource a better alternative to digging up more laterites in our tropical rainforests or, or, you know, collecting cobalt from the Congo. And so, you know, and I think the journey is going to be a, a, an exciting one. It's going to be a long one, but it's, it's one that we want more partnerships. We want more people to come and join us in what we're doing. And so uh, whether it's through our social channels or, or a direct reach out, please get involved. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you, Gerard, for making the time to join us on the podcast. Adrian, it's been a pleasure. Hope we can do it again. Maybe there should be a new series in the podcast. New Frontiers in Mining. Space and deep sea mining. Who knows? We'll leave it on the shelf if we have enough of these things. Maybe we will actually create a series out of that. Sort of a series and a series, a series and a show. So with that, I hope you enjoyed that. And if you know anybody that might be interested or just want to help out the podcast, share it with your friends, share it on your social media, tweet it and tag us. We will retweet you. And with that, thanks once again for joining our show. And until next week, take care.